So we have been talking about the Ten Commandments. This morning, we're going to kind of finish up. I started last week, uh, introduced Bearing His Name. We're going to finish that up briefly and then move into the Sabbath. Um, so how many know that in the modern world today, we have these things we call, uh, these descriptive laws, we call them the laws of nature and, uh, you know, science, we say these are unbreakable. These are absolutes, the laws of nature. I mean, like the law of gravity, uh, and it's one of the reasons why skeptics say, well, there can't be any resurrection from the dead because laws of nature say that won't happen. So how many know that's the modern world, the way the modern mind thinks? How many know that the modern mind also thinks that the systems of morals and ethics that we have, these are rules of thumb, Right? These are not absolute. Uh, they are um, based on um, uh, how we feel, if they're appropriate for a certain people in a certain time and a certain place. How many of you know we differentiate between the laws of nature and the, the, the laws of morals? How many of you know we do that? Hmm. If you don't, turn on the news. Exactly. All right, so here's the thing. This distinction that the modern world makes between the order of creation and the order of the moral law is a false distinction. Why? Because it's super convenient if moral laws aren't absolute, isn't it? I mean, if they're not absolute, then I can pretty much pick and choose what I want. It's which one do you want? How do you feel? Right? But see, here's the thing. These uh, are exactly opposed to what the Bible says. The narrative of the Bible literally forbids this dualistic kind of thinking. The ethical nature, the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the nature of ethics and the nature of nature are united. They're one. I know you're going like, where is he going with all this? This, this is going to make sense in a minute. The laws of nature, science, the hard science we do, and the moral laws of God are literally united. The Bible sees no distinction between them. The same God who created all of this and after everything he created said it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, is also the same God who said thou shall have no other God before me, worship me. It's the same God. And in fact, if in fact he created that, this world, and he created the laws of nature, then the only way we can operate in flourishing in this world is according to the moral law he created for it. Do you follow that? If he created this world, if he created everything to be good, and he created us in it, and he created a moral law to go with it, the only way we can flourish in this world is according to those moral laws. They're not, they're not multiple choice. They're not optional. They're the thing that brings life. And yet we are told today, that these are, these are based on your feelings. If it's good for you, what's right for you is right for you. What's true for you is true for you. No, Jesus is the truth. And when we say Jesus is the truth, we're not talking about an ethereal Jesus in a book somewhere, maybe. We're talking about a, 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 the God of creation who incarnated himself into this world physically in a time and a place. He became a part of creation just as much as you and I. He entered into it and was real and also says, I am the truth. He melded the two back together. 
So when we're looking at the Ten Commandments this morning, we're not simply looking at something, wouldn't it be nice, or uh, are these moral laws that certain people follow. We're actually looking what is necessary. We, we read it in a minute ago. We read it. It said, live free to set free, the Ten Commandments. When one rebels against the rules and regulations revealed by God in the Torah, he or she rebels against the order of creation itself and will suffer the consequences. Adopting a system of ethics contrary to the revealed will of the creator cuts against the grain. It is painful and frustrating and worst of all, deadly. I mean, it's really thought about the Ten Commandments that way. I love this quote. We like the first part of this, right? I love this quote. It says this. It says, his light gives wisdom and knowledge. How many want wisdom and knowledge from God? It says, his love gives power and strength. Oh, do I need that power. Lord, give me strength, which most of the time means, Lord, help me love. But why? To run the ways of his commandments with delight. To run the ways of his commandments with delight. The Ten Commandments, they reveal the character and nature of God. They're given directly by God. He spoke them uh, directly to us. They're based on creation itself, which is what I'm talking about. The, the very character and nature of creation comes, uh, uh, is exhibited through the laws of God. They create a constitutional covenant for Israel. They mediate a personal relationship between us and God. They're both constitutional for Israel, and they're also about you and me. And they provide a universal set of moral ideals from which we can be free. So let's take a look at them. So... Depending on, you know, what tradition you come from is how you're going to number them. There's a couple of different ways of numbering them. And we've been looking at that. But more importantly, and I want us to look at is the next chart that shows that the Ten Commandments are broken into three sections. And we've been, we've been working through the top section that talk about a relationship with God. This morning we're going to get into the, the, the Sabbath, which is the transitional uh, uh, commandment. But finally the, the, the commandments move into our relationship with others. And, and as we've been going through it, I am Yahweh your God. It's a statement of faith. We are in, we embra- as we embrace the Lord, he becomes our redemption. He brings us out of slavery. He, uh, he is the Lord our God. We've went through, you shall have no other gods before me. We literally enter into this marriage covenant with him by which we forsake all others. You shall m- not make an image or bow down to it. We are not to make the image because we are to be God's image. All of these things we've looked at. And this morning, we've, looked, we've begun to look at you shall not bear his name in vain. We're going to finish that up, and we're going to go into this transition. Uh, uh, go back to the three section for a minute. We're going to go into this transition. Um, remember the Sabbath. Now, I want us to look at something really fast. If you look at those commandments that follow after the transition commandment, notice something. Notice that every one of those bestows rights on other people. If we understand our relationship with God, if we understand who he is and who we are as a result, if we live that out in the transition of Sabbath, we are actually bestowing, we were called to bestow rights on others. When we're honoring our parents, we're literally learning that our parents are bestowing the image of God on us. When we're not killing, when we're called not to kill, we're bestowing the right to life. When we're called not to commit adultery, we're bestowing the right to a home. When we're called not to steal, we're bestowing the right to property. When we're called not to bear false witness, we're bestowing the right of a reputation. When When we're called not to covet, 
we're actually speaking to the very heart of bestowing rights. These things that we have codified in our laws in our nation, these aren't political statements. These are, these are inalienable things directly from the heart of God himself. Directly from the heart of God. Now here's the thing. What did Jesus give up? He was separated from his father. He gave up the right to life. He gave up the right to a home. He gave up the right to property. He gave up the right to a reputation. Why? So that he could restore to us at the very heart of what that means. Do you see it? So as we're going through these things, at the heart of these are the gospel. At the heart of these are the gospel. All right, so this morning, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. We touched on this last week. I'm going to bring us back to that place. It says in Exodus, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, How many of us have heard before, uh, ask the same question, how many of us have heard before that that means don't use God's name as a cuss word? I mean, you've heard that before, right? I mean, we hear this all the time. You know, you shouldn't, you know, don't, don't use the name of God in a way that would defile him. We hear that all the time, right? Now, that's not incorrect. We absolutely should not do that, but that's not what this commandment means. Uh, Carmen Imes, a scholar, I recommend you get her work on this. It's amazing work on this. She points out something, that that word right there that's, that says take, take uh, well, that word that says take right there, actually is better translated as lift up or bear the name of God. This command redefines what it means to live holy, to take or to bear his name. All right, so let's paint the picture. To bear the name of God literally means he's given us his name. It means he's taken us to himself. It means we've been adopted into his family. And what he's saying right here is don't do this in vain. Do not do this in vain. God is giving these commandments, everything else that commands. We're, we're, we're bestowing rights on others. All of those. Why talk about that? Because all of those are ways that we demonstrate we're bearing his name in this world. They're all demonstrating that we have not bowed down to false images, but become his image and bear his name in this world. So picture the scene, right? Well, we know the scene. The Lord is speaking to the people of Israel after he calls them out of Egypt. And he says, you, I, I, did you see what I did to the Egyptians? He said, I did that to bear you up on wings, like e- of eagle's wings, to bring you to myself. He says, now if you uh, obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, you are my treasured possession, for all the earth is mine. He says, I I shall make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And in so doing, the people of Israel literally walk down the altar with the Lord. They stand there forsaking all others and take his name on them. And we do the same when we go to the altar and say, Lord Jesus, I desire to take your name on me. That's what it means to bear his name. Okay, so let's dig down just a little bit deeper for this morning on that. The high priest, how many knew the high priest wore this ephod, and over top of it he had this breastplate that had all these jewels on it. How many aware of that? And he also had the, a jewel on each one of his shoulders. And on each one of, the, on each one of these jewels, there were two stones 
uh, was all the names of the tribes of Egypt engraved in, I mean, the tribes of Israel engraved in them and uh, on, on each shoulder. And this is what it says in Exodus 28. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. That is the exact same root word as to take not the Lord's name in vain. In the same way, the high priest went in before the Lord saying, I represent all of Israel is the same way God is calling us to bear his name everywhere we go. And don't do it in vain. I like what Carmen Imes said on this. She said this. She said, it likens uh, uh, bearing God's name to having an invisible tattoo marked permanently as God's people, but visible to the surrounding nations through their conduct and character. So what does this mean for us? It means this. God sent his son, Jesus. He sent him how? He came in the image of man doing what? Bearing God's name. Why? In order to restore back to us the image of God so that we could bear his name. This is why image and bearing go together. How many remember the, the scene at the Last Supper? They're sitting around there, and, and uh, uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And, and what does he say? He says, uh, Philip says to him, says, show us the Father. Show us the Father, Jesus. He says, how long have I been with you? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He says, you want to know what the Father looks like? He looks like this. He's not talking about his physical body. He's saying every word he spoke came directly from the Father. Every action he did came directly from the Father. He was bearing the name of the Father. In prayer between him, the most intimate chapter, one of the most intimate chapters in all the Bible, John chapter 17. Go back and read it. Because we get this window of this conversation between Jesus and the Father right there. And he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 26, I have made known to them your name over and over. He's talking about his name. And he didn't sit there at last hour. He goes, no, let me tell you how to spell his name. And let me tell you how to say it. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. I'll tell you what he's talking about. Go over to Philippians. Chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ, God is literally demonstrating his true character and nature. To Christ, what it meant to be equal with God meant to pour himself out for the sake of others and so taking the role of a slave. 
He not only reveals the character of God, he reveals what it means to be created in God's image. To bear his likeness, to have his mindset, it literally means to take on the role of the slave for the sake of others. That's what it meant for Jesus to bear the name. To empty himself and take on the role of a servant for others. You know, if we, get, if we can get this, if we can understand this, it's a two-edged sword. Why? Because what kind of amazing value do we have that he would do that for us? What kind of amazing value do you have that he would do that for you? He would literally empty himself to take on the form of a slave for your sake. That's amazing. The flip side is, what an incredible standard we were created to embody. Notice he took on the image of man. That's the standard we were created to embody. If we want to have a deeper and greater understanding of self-sacrifice, of character, of nature of God, we look at Christ bearing the name of God. If we're created in God's image, then everything we learn about the character and nature of God is also applicable to us. It's interesting the few places in the, in the uh, uh, apostolic writings where it talks about us actually bearing his name. Check this out in First Peter. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Yet if anyone suffers at a Christian, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory God let him glorify God in that name. You see what it says? He's saying to not take God's name in vain. Put it a different way. He's saying if we take God's name in vain, we're literally making a mockery of our salvation. It's the saying to take the blessing of Jesus. How many want the blessing of Jesus? Woo! Amen, I want the blessing of Jesus, means you take on the suffering of Jesus. It means to call yourself a Christian means you can't live like a pagan. To take, it means to take the love of Christ means to take the cross of Christ. So um, I remember having a chance to, actually a chance to interact with Carmen Imes, the scholar who wrote the book I was talking about earlier. And, and um, she was given this principle, and I shared a story with her I said, you know, when our kids were little and when they were growing up, and uh, we were trying to help them understand this image, this principle. And so we used to say to them, say, look, every time you leave the house, every time you go out from here, every time you're interacting in the world, you're carrying three names. Number one, you're carrying your own name, your own reputation in the world. But number two, you're carrying the name Bricada. So everything you do reflects back to anyone named Bricada. So therefore, number three, you're carrying the name of Christ. So anything you do reflects back to the name of Christ. So you shall not make an image. You shall be the image. You shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. You shall bear the name of Christ. Amen? All right, let's move over and take a look at the Sabbath. Um says this in Exodus, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servants, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your land. 
For in six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed Sabbath and made it holy. So we're looking at this. We've got to remember the Sabbath. We have to keep it holy. It's on the seventh day, six days you work, but on the seventh day, um, it's not only you, it's your son, your daughter, your, your servants, your livestock, your animals, the foreigners, it's everybody within your gates. So it's a total constant thing. And the reason for it, according to Exodus here, is because when God created heaven, when he created the earth, when he created the sea, when he created everything, on the six days, on the seventh day, he rested. So it literally goes back to creation itself. Do you remember what I was saying? The moral law of God is literally bound in the physical world. It's literally bound in the physical world. And so he blesses it, he makes it holy. In Deuteronomy, we get this given to us again. And it's important. There's a slight distinction between Exodus and Deuteronomy. It says, observe the Sabbath, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded. So instead of remember, it says observe, keep it holy. It says, six days you shall do no labor, do all your work. Same, same thing here. Seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord. Sabbath, another way of saying Sabbath is Sabbath rest. On it, you shall not do any work. You're the same thing. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, all of your animals, even the foreigners. And then it says this in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand in an outstretched arm. And therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Interesting. In Exodus, he's founded it on creation. What is he founded on here? Redemption. Redemption. So Sabbath, there's something about Sabbath that is about creation. There's something about it that's redemption. And I would submit to you, there's a whole lot more. Now let me say this as well, because there's a lot of confusion about this. There's only one day of the week that's the Sabbath. The Bible never changes the Sabbath. There's only one day it's the Sabbath. And we'll talk a little bit more about, well, what about Sundays? And what about how other people do it different ways? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but if I want to refer to Sabbath, it, the only place it's ever seen is the seventh day. All right. So I said earlier, we looked at this, this was a transitional commandment. Why? Why is it a transitional commandment? It's very simple. Because it's holy to God, right? Keep the Sabbath, it's holy to God. But it's for humans to enter into his rest. It's for humans. So there is a component in which we're worshiping God. And there is a component that is literally for us, for our well-being. Uh, so in transition, we're, we're honoring God. But we're participating in God's rest. It's both. It transitions us into bestowing rights onto others. So what is the actual commandment part? What is it? Number one, we have to remember it. I love this. One scholar put it this way. To remember is to remember or to put back together. It's the moment we look at the image of God. We stop we reflect on the image of God and we see how have we bifurcated our lives, separated our lives, pulled them apart. And we pull them all back together into that image of God. We are remembering our lives in God's order. Number one. Number two, we're to make it holy. What does that mean? It means we cease from all, act, we set it apart as a time to cease from other activities so that these activities are participating with God specifically. In these activities, we're participating with God specifically. All right, so there are four reasons. Actually, there's a multitude of reasons. We're just going to look at four reasons this morning as to why God gave the Sabbath. The first one was he literally designed it into the order of creation for your benefit and for mine. It's designed into it. Where is it first mentioned? Anybody know where it's first mentioned? 
Genesis chapter 1 on the se- in the in the seventh day of creation, right? This isn't a law that came hundreds of years later or thousands of years later. This is in the very beginning of creation. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the Sabbath from all his work that he had done. So God, what? Blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his works that he had created. Notice something. It's literally the very first thing in the Bible God makes holy. Very first time you see God make something holy, it's right there. It's the first place. Higher Bible. He, he, uh, God rests, rested on the Sabbath, and by, by creating the seventh day as separate from the rest, he literally designed it for rest in the very order of creation. He designed it for rest. He put it as part of creation and designed it as part of creation. So it's in the fabric of our existence. God chose a particular day. Why? Because he wanted to force us to permit his design to have priority over ours. God desires that his priorities are more than ours. It's a regular reminder. Why? So that we can understand the difference between sacred time and the sacred realm where he is and the world that isn't, the common world around us. Look, here's a fact. The fact of the matter is, how many know we're in a world that's constantly pushed to push us to work more, do more, perform more, get more, over and over and over. You know, uh, we, we've got schedules. You know, when I'm doing when I'm doing estimates, is it a five-day a week? Is it a six-day a week? Is it 10 hours a day? Is it 12 hours a day? Is it a seven-day a week? Do we have to do 13 ones? How are we going to work to get this job done? And we're constantly pushing to get more and more and more done. And, and the, the fact of the matter is we can become up here materially prosperous and absolute poverty and our understanding of who we are and what we've become in earth. Absolute poverty. Here's the other thing. When we rest, we literally give, not only give grace to ourselves, we've given it to others. Everybody. You rest. You rest. Your employees rest. The other people rest. We're literally bringing the grace of God to everyone. It is a day of grace. It's even rest for animals, it says. In our world where we're literally, where we literally have, we're, we're hot houses with chickens forcing them to lay eggs 24-7, forcing cows to milk 24-7, we've got all of these things. We're literally violating the order of creation in doing this. We're thinking we're prospering and we're actually destroying. So, in the, in the New Testament, there's a lot of controversy, you know, because you see the Pharisees. How many have ever read passages where Jesus and the Pharisees argue about the Sabbath? Anybody read those passages? And so, you know, it's like all of a sudden they're doing something and they're going, hey, you're doing that. You're breaking the law. You're breaking the law. Stop that. Now, let me tell you what's going on. I'll tell you what it isn't. It is not Jesus saying the Sabbath doesn't matter. That's not at all. Nor is it Jesus breaking the Sabbath. It's what it is, is him demonstrating what it's supposed to be, what it was meant from the beginning. But what, so why are the Pharisees saying you're breaking the law? You're breaking the law. Well, because they understood it was important. But in that understanding of it's important, they set a whole bunch of rules up that aren't in the Bible. You know, we never do that in church, do we? We never set up a whole bunch of rules that aren't in the Bible and then look at everybody around us who are breaking them going, you're an unholy person. Nobody's ever experienced that before. And so the Pharisees had done this in their time in their day. And the disciples come along and they're out in the field. It tells us right here the story in Mark. They're out in the field and it's on the Sabbath and they're going by and they're grabbing some of the, the heads off the grain and they're popping them in, eating them as they're walking along. And the Pharisees go, they're working. They're breaking the law. Jesus says, they're not breaking the law. 
you don't understand the law, that's the problem. The problem is, isn't that, that it doesn't say not to honor the Sabbath. It's the problem is you don't understand what it means to do it. He said this. He said to them, this is verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, it's a transition. It's a time for us to honor God and for us to receive from what God wants to give us. In Matthew, he says this. He says, which one of you, if you have a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is man than a sheep? What's it lawful to do? Do good. It's not, you're not breaking it if you're doing good. So it was designed in the created order to benefit man. Number two. It makes a theological statement. What is that statement? I am redeemed of the Lord. I am redeemed of the Lord. We we, we read this in Deuteronomy a minute ago. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So every time in in the ancient world, every time an Israelite is resting on the Sabbath, He's literally asserting his status as a free person. I'm free. Sabbath says I'm free. I'm free. I'm out of my former bondage. Yahweh did that. He bought me. He paid for me. He set me free. And we do the exact same thing every time we think of Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the riches of his grace. I'm free. I'm free. And Sabbath is a call to remember I'm free. It's a time for freedom, not bondage. It's a time for freedom, not bondage. Number three. So it's, it's, it's very fabric of creation order. It's a theological statement that I'm redeemed. It's also the sign that the creator has set for Israel that tells them they're in a special relationship with him. Now, I don't know if you check this out. Go back and look it up. Every covenant has its own unique special sign. Every one of them. But the, the covenant with Noah, what was the sign for the covenant with Noah? Rainbow, right? You know, you can hear the mumpets singing it. Rainbows, right? You know. <clears throat> Rainbows were the sign of the covenant with Noah. So the sign of the covenant with Abraham. What was that sign of that covenant? Anybody remember? Circumcision. Very good. Every covenant, there's a sign. But when you get to the Mosaic covenant, there's actually, uh, the rabbi says there's actually two of them. Sabbath is one. The second were the dietary regulations. These were signs. They demonstrate, and I'll show you in the scriptures in a minute. The th- the, another one, I may know the new covenant. I'm refer- I hope you all are familiar with the new covenant. Anybody here familiar with the new covenant? We're about to perform one of the signs of the new covenant. Communion is one of the signs of the new covenant. We do this. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Hey, what are you doing the Sabbath? Remember, it's a sign. The second thing is the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a sign. All right, so check this out in Exodus. Um, uh, The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. Why? Why? For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. Jump down to verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and refreshed. So this is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. You know, one of the reasons I think that's important uh, for us to understand, because we get into all these controversies about, you know, 
you know, as a Christian, am I supposed to keep Sabbath on the seventh day? You know, is, is Sunday our Sabbath day? Or can I pick my own? We get into all these controversies, but why? We get into them because there is no word. And every single one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament except the Sabbath. There's all kinds of information about the Sabbath, but it's the only one that's not given as an explicit command. Now, why? I think, I think for two reasons, and the first one is here. I think because it is, it is unique to Israel. That doesn't mean we don't participate. We'll understand in a couple of minutes, hopefully. Um, but I think that's part of it. All right. So it's, it's, it's designed to the created order for our benefit. It's a theological statement, I'm redeemed. It's set, uh, it establishes a special covenant relationship for Israel. But the fourth thing is this. And this is, some of us may have missed this one or not as familiar with it. It's literally a continual reminder to Israel that since God completed his work at creation, he's going to perfect his work in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Now catch this, watch this. The only day of creation, go back and read the story. Check it out, check me out. The only day in creation in which there's no darkness, Sabbath. Has no darkness, it is completely light. It's a complete light statement. It represents full deliverance from darkness to light, from death to life. Why? Everything God's doing is bringing life. When we get to Sabbath, it's complete. Everything he's doing is overcoming darkness. When we get to Sabbath, it's complete. God's rest has no darkness. I love this quote here. On the day that the horrific primordial chaos is banished forever, on that day, in other words, by resting on the Sabbath, Israel experiences the world to come, a world of untarnished blessing that they are destined to to inherit in the eschaton. Eschaton's in the end, in the end times, at the return. So Sabbath literally plays out the return of Christ. That Sabbath rest. It's about resurrection of the dead. It's about the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. It's the fulfillment of the promise of Garden of Eden itself. It's Garden of Eden returning to earth and there being eternal light. Go back, go read the end of Revelation. There's never any darkness anymore. The sea is gone. Philippians says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. He began a good work. Creation began a good work. He began a good work the moment we became a new creation. How many are looking for the day that that's completed? Anybody else? And that's what Sabbath is reminding us of. All right. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath is Christ himself. And we're going we're gonna to look at a, a piece of scripture here. This is from the writer of Hebrews. Now, we're going to look at the whole thing and go back and look at the whole thing. I'm going to just take a few verses. And we're going to see that Jesus himself is our Sabbath. What happens here is the writer of Hebrews takes this Sabbath from a day that we experience to actually us personally entering into Sabbath relationship. The Sabbath day becomes Sabbath relationship with God. And how? I'll tell you how. Through faith. I just gave the punchline away. Let's read it. Hebrews 3, 19. So we see that we were unable to enter because of unbelief. So, um, actually, I, I went ahead of myself. 316. For those who, uh, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, uh, led by Moses? So he's talking about when all the, all the Israelites came out of Egypt with Moses and they're out in the wilderness and they rebel against God. Ten times they rebel. Finally they rebel when they're supposed to go in. They refuse to go in and God says, that's it. I'm done with you. Uh, um, uh, you will all die in the wilderness. 
And he says this, the writer of Hebrews says, to whom did he swear that they shall not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So notice two things. Number one, the promised land is equated with Sabbath rest. Going into the promised land is equated with Sabbath rest. And number two, why didn't they go in? Because they were disobedient. Now check the next verse out. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Wait a minute. I thought it said uh, uh, disobedience. It did. The root of disobedience is unbelief. The root of disobedience is unbelief. The failure to enter into Sabbath rest with God is because of not trusting the rest he has provided. And he goes on and builds on that. See, so we see that they were unable to enter because of disbelief. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to fail to reach it. So he says to us, are you reaching it? Have you entered into the Sabbath rest of Christ? Or are you failing to reach it? You didn't think this was important. You thought, well, this is a sign for them. That's something. Oh, that's just one of the Ten Commandments. That's in the Old Testament. He's asking us, right? Or did you fail to reach it? Did you fail to enter in? For the good news, do you know what we call the good news? The gospel. It's the same word. It's just being translated. For the gospel came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Do you want the promise of Sabbath rest? Then hear the gospel and live it. That's the promise of Sabbath rest. Jump down to verse 4. For he has spoken, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is how we know he's talking about Sabbath. He told us. He's talking about Sabbath. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the gospel failed to enter because of disobedience, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of, un- of disobedience. That is, that's one of those places in the Bible where the verse is weird. Anybody know there are weird verses in the Bible? That's weird. Why? If I'm striving, how am I resting? It says strive to enter his rest. If I'm striving, how am I resting? It's very simple. My striving is in the the setting off all that tells me anything that is not a walk with faith from God is falling short from what he has, the fullness that he has for me. And so I strive to cut off anything that wants me to walk in, in anything but faith and belief in him. If this world is telling you, you need to work seven days a week, you need to perform and have all the material blessings, and God says you need to have time set aside with me, and that that's what will bring with flourishing, I need to strive to enter that. If this world is telling me that there are a set of rules that will, will help me live out in faith relationship with God. All of the flourishing it brings into this world. And, and if the, the Bible is telling me that, but the world is saying, hey, they're optional. I can pick and choose what I want and do based on what I feel. I need to strive to run from that. The writer of Hebrews is changing the entire characteristic of the Sabbath. Not as something we do once a week. It is to embrace by faith the redemption we are offered at the cross. To enter into the kingdom of God 
to enter into the, is to enter into the kingdom of Sabbath. Why? We read it. That's why I read it. Because Christ is the Lord of Sabbath. By faith, what do we do? We escape the horrors of chaos. We escape the darkness into light. We escape the slavery of sin. We escape death into life. And by faith, what do we do? We literally enter or re-enter into the order of creation. We enter into the redemption he's given us. We enter into covenant relationship. And what do we do there? We bear his name and image him on earth. We enter into new creation. We enter into the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And we all do this because Jesus, our Lord, the Messiah, is our Sabbath rest. So a person who feels um, Christ, Christ does not render Sabbath keeping irrelevant. A person who feels inclined to work seven days a week should examine what God he's worshiping. And there's all kinds of controversies about Sabbath. We could literally quickly extinguish every single one of them if all of us decided how we are going to worship God. Are we, is it going to be our spiritual service? Is it going to reflect an inner reality of the person that is beyond the judgment of others? Paul talks about this. This is in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his mind. So to close it out, in the Exodus, the Sabbath day and the Ten Commandments, it's founded on creation. So it's founded on the reality of this life we live every single day. It's not an esoteric, uh, uh, um, multiple choice, uh, religious statement. It's literally based on the fabric of creation. In Deuteronomy, it's founded on redemption. Redemption is the new creation. And when we come to Hebrews, by entering into God's rest through Christ, we literally are being redeemed. We literally are being a new creation. The Sabbath rest of creation is not only the beginning, it's the end. It's given in the beginning, in Genesis. It's given again through Exodus, repeated in Deuteronomy, and it's literally given again through Christ. The Sabbath literally speaks to the whole gospel, beginning to end, even final redemption in his return. Amen?